0: science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science on Cam FM. This podcast is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do with their time other than meticulously studying the behavior of their cat. I'm Ellie
1: and I'm Andrew. And lockdown is easing a bit in the UK, but there are still pretty strict lockdowns around the world. So we reckon we still have a purpose here.
0: Anything to make us feel useful. And also Although lockdown is easing here, there may be people like me who realise that they're actually quite good at this whole being-aloner situation, and are embracing their own self-imposed lockdown. If so, we salute you, you do you, no one is going to force you to give up Netflix evenings and tracky bottoms round here.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to kind of go back out into the world, you know. I'm quite looking forward to holiday, but otherwise... I, mean, I like know social away... interactions. Yeah,
0: they... far away place is great. Not other people.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to interact with people who don't have sort of a frame around their face in the shape of a laptop screen. These what days. are you going
0: to miss the most?
1: I mean, if I have to go into back into the office regularly, I'm definitely going to miss the homebrewed coffee.
0: Interesting how you said that. Hold that thought. You have just perfectly proven a point I'm going to make later. Oh, Uh, thank you. (laughs) So, I think with that, let's get on with the quiz.
1: Science of the Week.
0: So, it's that time of the show where we find out whether Andrew is allowed to keep his doctor title or whether he has to send it back. I'm going to quiz him on some of the science that has hit the news in the last couple of weeks. Wouldn't PhDs be easier if that's how you passed? Just like a big old science news quiz. No,
1: no. <laughs> ba- based on my results in this quiz, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd have a PhD. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Whereas I'd have one already, so it would really favour me.
1: Yeah, no, I'm very glad that PhDs aren't based on the results of quizzes like this. <laughs> I would not be in a good position.
0: Well, I don't know. Let's see. Let's see how this one goes. All Are right. we going to strip you of your title? At least Lockdown Science strip you of that title?
1: Mm.
0: Number one. What new discovery may make your 11am Americano more resilient to climate change?
1: Presumably a coffee bean which can cope with higher temperatures?
0: Yes, a species of wild coffee bean able to grow at warmer temperatures and still taste good. Ah, interesting. So this should come with a little bit of background about Andrew's coffee drinking habits that make me think that he will particularly care about this story. Andrew didn't used to drink coffee and then he did his PhD fieldwork in Ethiopia, got absolutely hooked on the stuff. Ethiopia does coffee really, really well.
1: Yeah, it's good coffee.
0: And then you were drinking unthinkable amounts of the stuff while on fieldwork. What was your record?
1: So they serve it in in very, very small espresso sized cups, and I think the most I ever had was was about nine or ten in an evening, but those so, are
0: strong that's like nine or ten shots of coffee, yeah in an and, evening, and I was
1: doing yeah, I was doing them in the evening'cause after dinner and then I would like go back and do some day trencher or whatever, but I was so tired from field work that it didn't affect me, and I would just fall asleep anyway, but that's actually not the worst. I had a master's student with me, Sam. Who would drink even more? So I would stop. I don't think I ever went above 10. He, I'm sure he went to 15 a That's couple of times. Okay. Like it was just, we got a bit addicted, but it was so good.
0: <laughs> but you know what, then? You came back to the UK and you are officially a coffee snob like since then you enjoy basically having chats with other coffee snobs about single origins of coffee, the preferred brewing method and the subtleties of the taste.
1: Yeah and I have to say I think I've got worse during lockdown as well because pre-lockdown I would still drink kind of mediocre coffee in the office but now having spent the whole of lockdown chatting to the local cafe on our village where the guy roasts his own coffee and i've now got hooked on his stuff and I, I think there's no going back um so i just have to admit that i'm you know you're a coffee full, snob. full coffee snob now there's a yeah. word for
0: people like you but we can't say it on fm radio <laughs> <laughs> so at 11 a.m every morning like clockwork andrew makes a coffee and he has been known to say that his favorite thing about working from home is the abundance of good coffee did you not just say that at the top of the podcast yes I did. like dude i'm right here So coffee is a big thing in your life. Yeah.
1: So can we find out about this study?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You don't want me to roast you like a coffee bean. So clearly you knew that your beloved coffee was under threat.
1: Well, I mean, it's a reasonable supposition because coffee grows out higher altitudes. Although it's grown in tropical locations, it's in higher altitudes and that's obviously going to be under threat from climate change.
0: Yeah, so the most widely used and widely accepted as the best tasting variety of coffee bean is Arabica. Then cheaper coffees use a bean called Robusta. Arabica is particularly threatened by climate change because it grows at cooler temperatures of around 19 degrees centigrade and it needs a reliable water supply. So with increased temperatures and droughts, coffee farmers are already seeing decreases in their yield. Now Robusta can grow at slightly warmer temperatures, but still only up to about 23 degrees and it's not as good anyway. So scientists at Kew Gardens have been long trying to find an alternative variety that is more resilient to climate change by testing wild species of coffee but most of them have just tasted a bit rubbish until now. So now the Q scientists have found a wild species in the forest of Sierra Leone called Coffea stenophylla.
1: Ah, so this is an entirely new species?
0: Well, I think they knew it existed because Q has these like incredible stores of plants. Yeah. But I think they went out into the field to sort of find fresh growing specimens. Okay. Okay. Now, the important thing about it is it can grow at warmer temperatures. And crucially, when it was served to coffee connoisseurs, 80% couldn't tell the difference between it and Arabica. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah.
0: So it's early days. The scientists are going to be running experiments to check how widely it can be propagated and just how resilient it is. But they have real hopes that in a few years we could see it marketed as a speciality coffee and then maybe a bit later it could become a staple in our coffee shops. Mm. So 11am coffee saved. Good news. I mean we joke about the effect of threatened coffee on your daily activities but actually there's just a really important human side to this discovery. 100 million people worldwide depend on coffee production for their livelihoods. Wow. So if the plant is threatened, then they're also at risk. Yeah. But this new plant provides hope for those communities to be able to continue their way of life. We know that coffee plantations can also be a huge source of deforestation, but the scientists at Kew also do a lot of work to help coffee farmers to earn a proper living wage while farming in environmentally sustainable ways, so that your 11am coffee fix can be good for you, the farmers, and for the planet. Winning.
1: Excellent stuff.
0: You feeling a bit cooler now?
1: I'm relieved. I'm relieved. My coffee's safe.
0: And I'm relieved that you just proved my point. <laughs> Number two. In my long running series, Stuff That The Perseverance Rover Mission Has Done, what historical moment took place on Mars this week?
1: Oh, I think I know this. It was the first flight in a non-Earth atmosphere. First powered flight in a non-Earth atmosphere. Yes.
0: ha two out of two so far Mm. can i just say i have typed perseverance so many times and i still get that squiggly red line every time it's like such a mental block for me there are so many vowels it's
1: such a hard word i don't i i have the same thing i I could never spell it
0: like however low your score on the quiz is i will always be humbled by that squiggly red line (laughs) anyway yes it's mini helicopter ingenuity has taken its first flight Importantly, this is the first controlled flight on another planet, a Martian Wright Brothers moment. Mm. If you remember from when we were talking about this way back when Perseverance landed, Ingenuity was strapped to the underside of Perseverance for the seven minutes of terror during its landing. But Ingenuity is now making its own name for itself. I feel like it's easy to overlook the significance of this moment because we know that we can fly things on Earth. and we know that we can land craft on other planets. But the significance of this is that when we land craft on other planets, it's essentially like a controlled falling situation. And when we fly things on Earth, we have developed those machines to be able to fly in our atmosphere and our level of gravity. And we have basically been able to go through like trial and error over the years, so we can find out what does and doesn't work and improve incrementally. But... On Mars, the conditions are just totally different. So firstly, the gravity. What do you know about gravity on Mars?
1: I'm actually not sure. Is it a bit weaker
0: than Earth? It is. It's actually much lower. It's about a third of the Earth's gravity. Oh, wow. And the atmosphere? No idea. Much thinner. At the surface of Mars, they only have 1% of the pressure that we have. So as NASA explains, essentially, there are fewer air molecules for the rotor blades on Ingenuity to interact with to get lift off and sustain flight.
1: Mm. So the lower gravity means you need less lift, but lesser atmosphere means that it's harder to generate the lift.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just basically so different that it's harder to test on Earth what will happen, right? So it's like I was saying, you know, you think on Earth, if something doesn't work, you just tweak it and you try it again yeah here you're working a completely different atmosphere completely different gravity and you're basically sending it up there you have one shot if it hadn't worked well that was that they'd have to try on the next, Wait mission. The next mission yeah
1: yeah but it did that, work that's amazing i hadn't really thought about the kind of permutations of working at how to get something to fly And you're right, that does put it in a lot more context of quite what an impressive achievement is.
0: Exactly. It rose to three metres and hovered stably for 30 seconds. Now, one of my favourite things about this is that because it's so far away, the scientists couldn't change or monitor anything in real time. The instructions for flight were pre-programmed into Ingenuity. And the video evidence of it happening was captured by the cameras on board Perseverance. Which makes me think of, like, a person filming their friends doing a really great TikTok dance and just being like, yes, mate, this is going to go viral. (laughs) I'm just imagining Perseverance being so proud, like, yeah, get it, get it, get it, get it.
1: You've you've properly attached a personality to Perseverance at this point, haven't you? I'm so
0: in love with Perseverance. I just want (laughs) to give it a hug, which is going to be really bad when, at some point, it runs out of its shelf life and it just dies on Mars. And I'm like, no! (laughs) Number three, a group of scientists at Purdue University have developed a new type of paint. What is so special about it?
1: Is it based on the new colour that we talked about a few weeks ago?
0: It's not, but I like your thinking, you're remembering stuff.
1: Yeah. Well I I know you you return to themes. I so. do, I
0: love a good theme. Um It uh, is the somethingest paint ever made.
1: Brightest?
0: Ooh, ooh, am I gonna give you that? Am I gonna give you that?
1: Yes, you are.
0: Yeah, you know what? I'm going to give you that. It's not quite right, but I'm in a good mood. For once, we're recording in the middle of the day and I am feeling perky.
1: (laughs) No grumpy Ellie today.
0: (laughs) It is the whitest paint ever created.
1: Wow, whiter than white.
0: It reflects a huge 98% of sunlight. That is some shiny stuff. Wow. Why? It might be an important tool in climate change. Okay. The research team led by Professor Ruan found that it cools the surfaces it's painted onto by 4.5 degrees centigrade below the ambient temperature. Wowza. This means that it's a great candidate for being used to paint the tops of buildings in cities.
1: Oh, that's a really clever idea.
0: So-called cool roofs have started to be rolled out in the US and Australia and a few other very hot countries, where just the roof of a building is painted white to reflect as much of the sun's rays as possible. In hot locations, this can reduce energy demands because essentially less heat gets absorbed by the building, so less air conditioning is needed inside. And a study found that they can also reduce water usage more generally in cities because they reduce the ambient temperature at ground level so that less water is needed for keeping lawns and parks green.
1: That's amazing. mm mm-hmm. I guess it's a bit like the the albedo effect that you get from the ice at the poles, mm. whereby the the ice is so large um, and, and white that it reflects a lot of the Earth's heat and actually keeps the planet cooler. I wonder whether you could have the same effect if you painted the roof of every building in the world.
0: Yeah, why stop at cool roofs? Talking to the BBC, Professor Rouen said that if they painted 1% of the Earth with this paint preferably somewhere that people and animals don't live, like a rocky desert, or I suppose enough roofs, they could help to tackle climate change. The kind of thing you're talking about. You see, the problem at the moment is that commercially available white paints are not hugely efficient at this task. So they generally only reflect about eighty to ninety percent of sunlight, which is just much less than, you know, the ninety eight percent reflectance of this newly developed paint.
1: That's really cool. I guess the other question though with the kind of climate change thing is like I've thought for a long time that we should put solar panels on the roofs of new buildings kind of as standard to start generating electricity. So now that I guess there's a kind of trade off between Do you put solar panels on, which helps you to generate more clean energy? Or do you paint the roof white, which means that you need to use less energy in the first place?
0: Both. Every roof has one or the other One or the other, other. yeah. (laughs) So I thought the sort of chemistry and physics of this was super cool. The paint is so good at reflecting sunlight for three reasons. Firstly, it contains barium sulphate as the pigment, which doesn't absorb UV light and it contains a very high percentage of this pigment at 60% and the paint also contains lots of different sizes of these barium sulfate particles which helps to reflect light because different sizes of particles scatter different wavelengths of light mm. now you might be thinking in practical terms well the researchers have done abrasion tests to check its hardiness but apparently longer term weathering tests are also needed to you know check its longevity outside but it's looking promising the researchers are now working with a commercial company in the hope of making it available for consumer use in the coming years. Wow! So there we have it. On this podcast, we have discussed the blackest black, the bluest blue, and now we've got the whitest white.
1: What colours next?
0: Well, so I, <laughs> I read a funny story when researching this, actually. Apparently, one artist bought the exclusive rights to use Vantablack, the blackest black, for his artwork. So no other artists were allowed to use it. It would be like copyright infringements which got other artists up in arms. So another artist created what he termed the pinkest pink and sold it online with a note that anyone could buy it except the artist who had (laughs) Vantablack. I live for the pettiness.
1: Brilliant. I I love it. I love it. Because yeah, that's not cool from the artist who bought the Vantablack. But great response by the other guy. I know. Brilliant.
0: Number four. According to a new study, what percent of land on Earth is still ecologically intact?
1: Hmm. I think I heard about this. Is it three percent?
0: It is. I'm going to give you that. It's slightly less than three percent. That's not a good figure. But is it entirely surprising?
1: No, not really. I mean, yes and no. I suppose. I suppose the thing that you would always cling on to is the kind of open wilderness areas of places like you know Siberia, Northern Canada, Antarctica, and then obviously you know, the very centre of the major rainforests Which basically, deserts.
0: Those, those locations are pretty much what these 3% yeah. consist of.
1: Yeah, but I of. guess I would have hoped that that would, be more, that would add up to more than 3%. Mm.
0: Well, it is less than other studies have generally said. So most previous studies looking at ecological intactness have looked at how disturbed the structure of a habitat is. So they might look at satellite images of forests and see how much has been destroyed but that only tells us about the disturbance of that top canopy. And then LIDAR imagery, which we've discussed before on the podcast, could also be used. And that's better at showing the disturbance under the canopy where the understory might have been destroyed, but the trees themselves left standing. But this usually doesn't tell you about the ecological communities of animals living there and how they're doing. Now, these previous studies using satellite imagery have estimated between 20 to 40 percent of the earth may be ecologically intact, which sounds pretty optimistic, but this new study by Plumtree et al. thinks that that's a gross overestimation of the functional intactness. That's the metric that really matters, by which I mean it's not just how intact it looks, but whether the communities of species are still intact, or whether there are extinctions happening which affect the ecological functions of those communities. Like, are we losing important seed dispersers or decomposers? You know, yeah. animals that do important things in the habitat.
1: Yeah, so it's the whole idea of having kind of empty forests, I guess, where because trees live for so long, the forest might remain standing long after the animals that live there have all kind of died out or disappeared.
0: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So the researchers counted an intact habitat as one that had similar species in similar abundance to what it did 500 years ago. So this includes, like you said, you know, parts of the Amazon, the Congo, Siberia, the kind of places you'd expect. Yeah. And the researchers say that these should be areas to prioritise for conservation, but only 11% of this, less than 3%, were actually in protected areas.
1: Wow. Okay. Because you sort of think, if, if presumably these places are amongst the most remote places on the earth. Mm. If they're, if they're going to be intact, they're a long way from people. And so that's often where people do stick protected areas, in part because they're important and they're pristine and in part because they sort of think, well, we can put protected areas there and not affect people. So it's Mm. kind of an easy win. So I'm actually even more surprised by that figure of 11% than I am by the original 3%, I think.
0: Actually, there are some quite easy wins you could potentially get there. Yeah. So some critics of the paper have suggested that this less than 3% figure is an underestimation because the data sets going back 500 years are of varying quality and may just not be very accurate. In my opinion, scientists are constantly trying to work out the best way to measure intactness and, you know, prioritise areas for conservation. And there is no one right way to do this. So to me, this is a very interesting approach. It has some really strong merits. I like that it's a metric that can tell us something about functional intactness, because that should be a more meaningful metric. And like, yeah, sure, it has some caveats to be made. But when, with a topic this nuanced, can you ever find a solution with no caveats?
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. And also, even if it is an underestimate, because it's got very stringent criteria or whatever, it's still telling us something valuable, because this is probably, you know, the most pristine three percent on the planet and and the most important thing for us to protect of the sort of subset of 20 to 40 percent of whatever other studies give this is the three percent that we should care about the most kind Mm. of thing so i still think that's useful
0: number five what behavior has been observed in lions that may help with social cohesion within groups
1: Ooh, i have no idea communal licking I'm thinking maybe that's the lion equivalent of kind of primate grooming or something.
0: No, this is something that I do a lot and I don't do communal licking, um, as far as you
1: know. <laughs> uh, singing?
0: <laughs> I'm doing a face now, currently. No, that's not the face I was doing. Okay. Uh,
1: <laughs> I don't know, fly catching you sleep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yawning!
1: Okay, that wasn't a very convincing fake yawn.
0: Rude. It's contagious Yawning. Lots of species yawn, but contagious yawning has only been observed in a few species, including humans, obviously. We know that when someone yawns near us, we can't help but yawn ourselves. But a recent paper by Cassetta et al. reports the same behaviour in wild lions. But why? Why do we yawn and why can we catch a yawn?
1: I've seen stuff that says it's to do with, like, empathy. It's a sign of only very social animals, so particularly primates, and it's a, it's an empathic thing, but I don't really know what the evolutionary function is.
0: Yeah, well, that's one potential theory. So in terms of like why we yawn, firstly, there's the drowsiness hypothesis. So animals, including us, yawn when going from awakeness to sleepiness or vice versa as a way to increase alertness so that we can adjust our behavior quickly if something happens. Mm-hmm. So you yawn, you increase the oxygen to your brain, you increase the blood flow. Okay. You know, it's very physical. Secondly, the arousal hypothesis. Perhaps we yawn more in response to anxiety-inducing events because it works as a stress reliever. Now, this has been observed in some species of primates where if they are, you know, fighting for food or something, they'll yawn more. Oh, okay. Thirdly, the social communicative hypothesis, which is kind of what you were talking about just then, that the yawn conveys something about the emotional or physical state of the, let's say, yawny, That is important information for the group that the individual is in. So if you yawn, it tells me that you are tired. And that might be important if we're out hunting together. Okay. So that's fine. But, and this is, again, going to touch on what you were just saying, why would we be able to catch a yawn? Well, the easiest explanation is that it helps with social cohesion. Basically, it helps group members to sync up their movements and behaviours. So that sounds weird and kind of unhelpful, right? Like you said, what's the evolutionary pathway there? But, for example, in wild animals, by syncing up their understanding of each other's emotions and behaviours, they might be more effective at group hunting or being vigilant against predators. Lions, surprisingly for cats, live in groups, so they're a good species in which to test this hypothesis. Does yawning together actually make lions sync up their movements more generally? Well, yes, it appears that it does, After a lion caught a yawn off another lion, it was 11 times more likely to copy the other subsequent movements of that lion.
1: Oh, weird. It basically
0: synced up with it.
1: That's so bizarre.
0: So contagious yawning in lions may be a way for group members to become more aware and aligned with each other's physical and emotional states and become more effective team members.
1: So what you're saying is we should all yawn more in team meetings.
0: Uh, I think we do enough of it already, to be honest. <laughs> but I've, I've heard people say this, and I don't know what the science is behind this, but I've heard people say that when people are flirting with someone, they tend to copy their movements more.
1: Yeah, I've heard that as well.
0: So I don't know, there's something going on here about cohesion, but I love the fact that it's been found in lions, right? Because for one thing, lions don't know... That they're doing it for a researcher so they're just acting completely natural and these are wild lions so there's not going to be an effect of captivity on them
1: yeah it's always interesting to observe these kind of highly social behaviors in things other than primates because it kind of gives you something where it's evolved separately from where it's evolved in us exactly and that's very cool
0: Well, at the end of that quiz, you got a shocking four out of five. Woohoo! I think you can keep your doctor title. Yeah. Yeah. I will not be ringing up Cambridge today to tell them to strip you of it. How do you feel about that glorious victory?
1: Very happy with that. (laughs) Journal Club.
0: Right. Well, what have you got for me this week as your paper suggestion?
1: Well... For the last few weeks, I've been bringing you some of the latest science, generally stuff published in 2021. So this week, I thought it was time to take a deep dive back into the archives and bring out a classic paper, which I was reminded of recently. This is a firm favourite amongst my colleagues in conservation evidence, because it's one of the oldest papers we have in our database. It's from the Journal of Wildlife Management and was published in 1950. Ooh, that's, that's a... That's 71 years ago.
0: That's an antique
1: yeah i mean i think it's a sign of my age that like things now start to seem like i'm surprised that they're as long ago as they are but even so like it's kind of amazing to think that proper full-on scientific journals have been going for that long and back then the world was a very different place
0: mm-hmm. not for it's good like, reasons and most part hmm? yes and no
1: We'll we'll go through both of those i think so actually linking to one of your questions just now Back in 1950, large areas of wilderness remained untouched by modern roads.
0: Okay, Yep. Yeah, good point.
1: That's good. Beavers were still hunted for their fur. That's bad. Science was written like soothing storytelling. I
0: think... I like that. I like that. I, like I think that.
1: that's good. And the cost of hiring a plane was really, really cheap.
0: Weird. Apparently. Weird. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't expecting that.
1: Nor me. But are those four facts related, or am I going mad?
0: Um... I think they're related.
1: They might be. We'll carry on. So these days, translocation and reintroduction of wild animals has become relatively common. In the UK, for example, lots of species, particularly birds, which were persecuted to extinction over the last few hundred years, have been brought back, seeded by the release of animals from mainland Europe. So red kites, white-tailed eagles and common cranes, to name just a few. And there's talk and even experiments in releasing mammals like wild boar, beavers and lynx, now, over the last 40 to 50 years, lots of techniques for the best practice of capture, handling and release of animals have been developed. And a lot of reintroductions have been really successful. So this is now something that like, conservationists do quite a lot and in a lot of cases have become quite good at.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've looked at a lot of papers about this. Fact, uh, we yeah. have a
1: lot of these. Conservation so for this evidence. to
0: stand out, this must be quite special.
1: Yeah. So we, we have lots of actions for sort of general translocation and reintroduction. But this one is a bit different. So back in the 1940s, translocations were much less common. But in the USA, beavers were being moved around. Generally, this wasn't really being done for conservation. People were removing beavers from areas where they were abundant and posed a threat to things like orchards or irrigation systems and releasing them in areas where numbers were scarce and people wanted to establish stronger populations so they could hunt them for their fur. And of course, presumably, also castoreum or odor beaver, which we've talked about before.
0: Beaver juice. Beaver
1: juice. (gasps) <gasps> but interestingly even in this paper in 1950 the author notes that the released beavers do much to improve the habitats of game fish and waterfowl and perform an important service in watershed conservation
0: i like the accent i think that's uh, probably unrealistic seeing as it's an american paper yeah but i like the idea of the old scientist
1: yeah i can't do old school american accent so i thought i'd stick with old school british accent so this is quite interesting because it's a paper which is doing something which is now done quite commonly for conservation but wasn't really being done for conservation at the time but it still tells us something useful so transportation of beavers was generally done by car but for reaching remote areas away from human habitation mountainous forested country often became inaccessible and rangers had to resort to horses this had several drawbacks not least the length of time it took to get anywhere. It might take days to transport beavers across country, during which the beavers, being housed in crates, had to be kept cool and were regularly loaded and unloaded from the horses.
0: That's a really long time. Yeah,
1: and this, as you might expect, resulted in quite high mortality of beavers.
0: Yeah, or at least very unhappy beavers, even if they survived.
1: Very, very, yeah. So one of the delightful phrases in this paper is that Older individuals often become dangerously belligerent.
0: <laughs> grumpy old beavers.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons why they recommend translocating younger animals, partly because they give you more time at the release site and apparently they're more likely to stay put when you release them, but but also just because the older ones get grumpier.
0: Oh, I would get grumpy.
1: Yeah, I think I think I would too. And it wasn't just bad for the beavers. The horses and mules became spooky and quarrelsome when loaded with a struggling, odorous pair of live beavers.
0: <laughs> oh, I have to dissect that a little bit. Um, spooky and quarrelsome horses.
1: I-, I guess spooky means like spooked, but it's spooky. Yeah, <laughs> spooky horses. <laughs>
0: and what was it sorry odorous beavers
1: uh, struggling odorous pair of live beavers
0: <laughs> that sounds dirty
1: <laughs> yeah it really does doesn't it
0: <laughs> moving on
1: <laughs> yes moving on so how do you transport beavers across country quickly in the absence of roads or railways to deliver them to remote release sites
0: this has something to do with the plane being but, cheap doesn't yeah, it? yeah
1: by plane and parachute
0: No! (laughs) Yes,
1: parachuting beavers. In this paper, Almo Hetter describes a new method of beaver translocation. He first tested dropping dummy weights with different sizes and designs of parachute. To find a balance between designs which fell safely and landed softly, the load had to be heavy enough to get the parachute to open automatically when it was dropped, but then light enough to still land gently when it reached the ground. Mm -hmm. There was also the issue of release. So unlike all of the heartwarming videos you get of animals being released from crates in the wild, there would be no one on hand to open the door after the beavers had landed. So the first idea was to use box ends made of woven willow on the basis that that's something that beavers like to eat, and so they could chew their way out. Oh! Now, this seems like a brilliant solution. I thought it was really clever. Yeah. But when they tested it, they found that the beavers chewed their way out too quickly.
0: What, so while they were still flying?
1: I think they didn't test it on a plane. They just put beavers into the crates and kind of timed how long it got to okay. them to get out. And they knew how long they were going to need to kind of put them in a crate, pack them onto a plane, fly them to where they needed to be and, and fall. So the time that the beavers took to chew their way out risked them either being loose on the plane ah. or falling out of the box mid-descent.
0: Oh, that's not good. Don't yeah. do that.
1: So they abandoned that idea. And instead, they had to construct an elaborate system of ropes and ties such that the box was at first held shut on the ground and in the plane with some looser ropes or weaker ropes, which would then break when they were pushed out of the plane. But then while it was in descent, a second set of ropes was attached that with the force going up in the parachute would continue to hold the box shut until it landed. And then the force is released and the box would just fall open naturally. This is so high tech. Right? It, it's mad. It's a crazy level of design. This paper is only four pages long. And about half of that is given over to detailed descriptions and a diagram of how these boxes were constructed. Rightly so. I mean, fair play. Like, this is a really good paper for demonstra- for all the kind of hilarious language. It's a really good paper for demonstrating how you write your methods mm. in a way that it's completely reproducible. Yeah, because you know
0: exactly how to put a beaver on a box now.
1: Yeah, this is designed so that someone could do it again if they wanted to. So having designed the box and the automatic release mechanism, the whole setup was tested again with dummy weights to check that it worked. Then it was time to add some beaver. Oh no. And for this, I'm going to hand you over to the exact words of Elmo Heater, because I cannot possibly hope to phrase this any better myself.
0: I love Elmo so much already.
1: One old male beaver whom we fondly named Geronimo, was dropped again and again on the flying field. Each time he scrambled out of the box, someone was on hand to pick him up. Poor fellow! He He finally became resigned, and as soon as we approached him, would crawl back into his box, ready to go aloft again. You may be sure that Geronimo had a priority reservation on the first ship into the hinterland,
0: I should bloody well think so.
1: And that three young females went with him. His colony was later reported as very well established.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go Geronimo. You go Geronimo.
1: I wish it was still okay for us to write papers with interludes where we just name our individual study animals and then drop in remarks like, poor fellow, just to spice up the writing. Can
0: you imagine if I did that with every beetle in my study?
1: (laughs) You have hundreds. You (laughs) run out of names. So many names. Anyway. In autumn 1948, 76 live beavers were dropped in groups of four, with only one casualty. And in 1949, all of the translocations appeared to have been successful, with beavers having built dams and houses at each site. So the author happily reports that this method for transplanting beavers by aeroplane and parachute is successful and has a far higher survival rate of beavers than using horses
0: that is good
1: it is good it's, it's really cool but i also mentioned the cost mm. so even today for all of the constraints on conservation funding it's remarkably uncommon for research papers to report the costs involved in implementing a conservation action which isn't much use for someone else who's interested in either replicating a successful method or who needs to choose between two methods but wants to know which is cheaper but back in 1950 this paper was way ahead of its time. Yes, Elmo. So what do you reckon the total cost of translocating four beavers by aeroplane and parachute might be?
0: Uh, how far were they going-ish? The like same state?
1: I think it was within Idaho. So I'll give you a clue. You need to factor in the cost of the two boxes, mm-hmm. the two parachutes, and the flying time of the aeroplane. And back calculate for inflation to a value in dollars in 1950.
0: Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um. Okay, so these days, I'd say that, like, the plane is going to be so expensive. So I'm going to go with around 100 grand these days. So back then, I don't know, 50 grand.
1: So you're saying 100 grand for four beavers?
0: Yeah, I reckon because I think the plane would be most of the cost.
1: Yeah, it's nowhere near that. What is it? It was
0: $30. No!
1: Yeah, so... That's $30 in 1950. According to Google, that's about $331 in today's money, or £238. But of that, the cost of the plane was only $12, or $132 in today's money, £95.
0: So what we've learned about me is I don't know much about inflation, and I've never rented a plane. Or... Just the cost of the plane has massively increased.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was surprised.
0: Mad. That is mad cheap.
1: It seems it, doesn't it? Can you imagine renting a plane for £95 for just you know no. flies and beavers across country?
0: No, I cannot. <laughs> yeah. Wait, uh, I have questions. What happened to the casualty?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> they actually modified the box tying design after the first translocation because on the first one they didn't do it tight enough and when the box was pushed out of the plane a small gap opened and the beaver managed to wiggle its head through and it climbed out and got onto the top of the box what yeah he actually talks about this in paper and says it would have been fine had for some reason as it got to like relatively close to the ground it just inexplicably jumped off the box yeah i guess because it kind of then was like oh i can see ground, and- tried to get to it and it didn't it it didn't survive
0: what why are these beavers so energetic
1: i I don't know i guess they're sort of they're quite sort of busy robust little animals aren't they i suppose they're always up and about
0: yeah wow oh no bad times for that beaver but geronimo survived
1: yes geronimo survived and all of the others they only had the one casualty wow which i yeah he doesn't give a like mortality rate for the translocation by horses but From what he described, it's much, much higher.
0: Yeah, so this sounds like a mad plan, but if it has a lower mortality rate, then great.
1: Yeah, and also this represented a significant saving over the cost of man-hours and pack animals required for the terrestrial translocations.
0: And, crucially, fewer spooky horses.
1: Very true. No need for spooky horses at all. In actual fact, the author reckons that they recovered enough of the parachutes, because I guess they could kind of go in later on, to lower the cost to less than $16 per drop, Yikes. or $4 per beaver. <laughs> I reckon they should have marketed this. Ladies and gentlemen, roll up, roll up. Sign up for just the cost of $4. You could have your very own beaver airdropped to your house, field, or farm.
0: <laughs> How much uptake do you think that would get?
1: I don't know. It's the sort of thing I imagine people would sign up for these days.
0: Yeah. Oh, we all love a good beaver, are beaver. Yeah, why not?
1: anyway i digress the point is that this study simultaneously offers up some really ingenious box and rope designs a successful conservation action beautiful old school science writing and was decades ahead of its time and there's contemporary news report available on youtube which i'm going to put in the podcast description and on our socials you're welcome
0: this is brilliant the only thing i wish had been included is i feel like if you're going to airdrop beavers you need to try it yourself first for animal ethics reasons so you just um, pack
1: a human into the box yep,
0: yep. <laughs> yep if it's good enough for the beavers it's good enough for the researchers fair enough
1: yeah what's your paper
0: this week i've been reading a paper which is also zoological kelsa Prees, but i think it has some strong messages for us human animals at the moment It's titled, Rhesus Macaques Built New Social Connections After a Natural Disaster by Testard et al. No, this is not the TikTok Instagram type of social connection, but the good old fashioned face-to-face type. I first found this paper because of a great thread by the lead author Camille Testar on Twitter. So I gave it a read and it's just what I love in a paper. Cool study animal, neat data collection and a question that's important to the specific study animal, but also species more widely. And the paper was clearly written with nice subtitles that told me what was going on. And it's open access so everyone can read it. Winning all round so this study is focused around the outcome of the catastrophic hurricane maria that hit puerto rico in 2017 and absolutely devastated the island it destroyed houses farms and left thousands of residents dead it was just awful this study however focuses on a small island just off the east coast of puerto rico called cayo santiago which has a population of rhesus macaques which is a type of monkey Looking at how animals, including we human animals, cope with disaster is really important because with climate change, extreme weather is unfortunately getting more frequent and less predictable. So we need to understand what makes animals more likely to be resilient to these events. Now, the paper starts with a sentence that felt a bit on the nose at the moment the quality and quantity of social relationships predicts morbidity and mortality in humans and other animals. Like, whoa, folks, I'm feeling a bit attached right now sitting under a blanket with only my laptop having not seen people for days. (laughs) But to be fair, it's true. Humans with strong social relationships seem to deal better with extreme events. This is known as the social buffering hypothesis. I'm getting a lot of hypotheses in this episode, aren't Mm. I? So put simply, you are somewhat buffered from the fallout of catastrophe by having bonds with others. Understanding why this happens might help us to deal with the human and other animal fallout from these increasing storms. Now, on this island with the macaques, Cayo Santiago, a lot of vegetation was lost due to Hurricane Maria. But there wasn't a huge percentage of excess deaths among the macaque population, mainly because they were provisioned with food and water. Mm. The fact that the macaques had their habitat destroyed, but they suffered relatively low mortality means that we can look at them as an example for how humans might fare after extreme weather events, like hurricanes, where often the material damage outstrips the actual lives lost. So a lot of time when you get hurricanes, houses are destroyed. You will very sadly get some deaths, but more people will lose their homes than die.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Now, the super cool thing about this study is that the researchers had data of social interactions between the monkeys for three years before the hurricane and then collected data in the year after the hurricane so they could literally analyse the effect that the hurricane had on the social interactions between individual monkeys.
1: Mm, interesting.
0: So first question, does the social buffering hypothesis hold with these monkeys? That is, do the monkeys show more interest in bonding with other monkeys after the hurricane as a way to buffer themselves from the fallout?
1: I'm going to guess yes.
0: Well, the way that the researchers measured this was to look at how often monkeys sat close to other monkeys and how often they groomed other monkeys. So, two accepted metrics for showing that a monkey is being sociable, yeah. which sounds pretty similar to humans. Maybe not the grooming part, but the being close to each other, you know, hugs playing with each other's hair i don't know what do humans do outside lockdown I'm not really, i don't really remember <laughs> i don't
1: know anymore what did we do yeah i mean I, it, it's reasonable isn't it? it they're in the same group they're hanging out together and and grooming is sort of a behavior which is is known to be a sociable thing to do
0: this is gonna be me after lockdown how do we do it social licking is social licking a thing
1: always with is, the licking is that what I? Did? always with the licking <laughs>
0: Well, away from that disturbing thought, but you're right. Yes, they do. Monkeys were four times more likely to stay close to other monkeys after the hurricane than before. Yeah, I know, right? And they were more than 50% more likely to groom others after the hurricane. So this is looking generally, but the next question was, what affects whether a particular monkey is more likely to show this more social behaviour after the hurricane? Like, are they more likely to be sociable? if their pre-hurricane bestie didn't make it through the hurricane
1: oh yeah
0: interestingly it was actually the monkeys that were the least sociable before the hurricane that saw the greatest increase in sociality after it Mm. which kind of feels like it has a lockdown message for all us introverts who are actually pretty fine with the whole isolating thing but are now actually god forbid missing other humans But there are still more questions because there are different ways in which you can increase your sociality. You can either be more sociable with your previous friends or you can make more friends. Basically, after lockdown, do you want to meet up with your old friends or go out into the world and find some better ones whose face you're not sick of on the Zoom window? (laughs) Sorry to all of my friends. The researchers found that the monkeys actually increased the number of social bonds they had. So they made some new friends rather than just becoming more clingy and intense with their previous friends. Which is the opposite of what I'm going to do, by the way. Watch out for people who are already my friends. I'm about to get real clingy once this lockdown is over.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that's that's the opposite to me. I'm. I, wa- I, I miss my friends who I already have and I want to see them i'm not sure i'm so fussed about going out and meeting loads of new people
0: no unless you email us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com and then we'd love to meet you (laughs) in which case you can be our new friends
1: but that's okay because it's it's got the distance of the internet in in, in the way (laughs) so we're sort of it's like being safe behind the zoom window
0: also no we i mean we've been talking to you for so long over lockdown you are our friends we are
1: basically (laughs) friends now
0: So in case you are going to make like the monkeys after the pandemic and find some new friends, maybe there's a lesson in there about what type of new friends we should find.
1: Friends that groom you?
0: Well, the researchers wondered whether the monkeys would generally seek out social bonds with other monkeys that were of high status or monkeys that were related to them, because this might make it easier for them to gain additional food resources or secure a loyal bond in a tough environment. But actually, no, they found that the monkeys formed new bonds using what the researchers call the path of least resistance approach. Do you know what that means?
1: Is it something to do with making new bonds with the monkeys that were the most friendly back to them kind of thing?
0: No, although that does sound like a good social yeah. tip.
1: And also adorable.
0: Yes, it actually means that they made friends with the friends of their friends.
1: Okay. Which again,
0: makes a lot of sense as a lesson for those of us who might be more awkward when making friends, just tag along with the friends of your friends because they're probably good people and it's a lot less effort than finding your own friends.
1: Yeah, just just find that friend who's like really, really sociable and knows everybody and just tag onto them and meet everyone they know. Exactly. And then you don't have to do any of the work yourself.
0: Precisely. In terms of the research, this way of making new bonds could be effective at getting as much general acceptance as possible. Rather than just appealing to a few high status individuals, you make more friends in general. Yeah. So in a crisis, just like on social media, more friends are better than a few important friends. Unless, of course, like Beyonce follows you on Twitter and then she's probably more important than the rest of the general friends.
1: Yeah. Does a Twitter follow count as a friend?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Depends on who you ask, doesn't it? Very true. So what does this tell us about humans and other animals more generally? Well, firstly, if you're a bit of a loner, then a natural disaster is just the kick at the backside you need to start talking to people. But on a more serious note, it shows that in the face of catastrophe, animals, including humans, do tend to rally around and come together, because as the social buffering hypothesis suggests, and this paper backs up, having a strong social network can make you more resilient to all that life throws at you. So when disaster hits, best to be the person rallying around to help the community, rather than the one punching someone in the face for a trolley load of loo roll.
1: That's a good motto. Good life lesson there. <laughs> Animal
0: Etymologies I'm just going to go straight in with this animal etymology because I don't think you're going to know the scientific name for this week's species. Can you tell me what Cycrolutes Marcidus is better known as? Um, Cycrolutes Marcidus. No, I can't. What if I told you that Cycrolutes comes from the Greek, Cycroluteo, meaning to have a cold bath, and Marcidus comes from the Latin, marcheo, meaning to droop or wither? can you think of a species that is droopy and could be said to enjoy a cold bath
1: uh that is a that is a bizarre um name for a species I know, to I enjoy it. a cold bath um <laughs> droopy and enjoy some kind of deep is it a blobfish
0: it, it, yes yes <laughs> it's a blobfish or more specifically the smooth head blobfish It's the blobfish whose photo went viral a few years ago when it won the Ugly Animal Preservation Society's World's Ugliest Animal Award. (laughs) If anyone hasn't seen it, just go ahead, look it up right now. It basically looks like how I feel in the morning. Doesn't droopy cold bathers sum it up pretty well?
1: Yeah, I mean, it actually does. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, you got it.
1: Yeah, lives in the deep sea, hence cold water, and just kind of droopy.
0: Kind of droopy looking. But an interesting thing I learned is that although we think of the blobfish looking like a blamange that's been taken out of the mould too early, it actually looks nothing like that when it's in its natural environment. The photo mm. that everyone thinks of when they picture a blobfish was of a specimen fondly named Mr. Blobby by the research team that dredged him up from the deep. He came from between 1,013 metres and 1,340 metres down in the deep ocean where the pressure is much higher. And blobfish have very flexible gelatinous flesh and soft bones so that they don't crack under the pressure. So when they're brought up to the surface, they suffer decompression damage and all their flesh goes kind of gloopy and squashed. Hence, when that photo was taken, Mr. Blobby was having a very bad day indeed.
1: So they're naturally a bit perkier.
0: Yes, exactly. They naturally just look a little bit more solid. Okay. It's like when you have your passport photo taken, you inevitably look like a scrotum and you have to deal with it for the next 10 years. (laughs) So sorry for the misrepresentation, Mr. Blobby, but at least you went viral. Influencers everywhere should take note.
1: Isolation Recommendations. I don't have enough to do this week, so what's your recommendation?
0: Well, I found out this week that since January, the Science Museum has been holding free online events about climate change, hosted and panelled by experts high-profile science communicators and prominent journalists with an interest in climate change. Mm. They cover a huge range of topics related to climate change. There was one called Climate Change, the View from Space, with astronauts Helen Sharman and Tim Peake in conversation with Maggie Adderin-Pocock. There's one coming up at the end of the month with a range of high-profile speakers called 1.5 versus 2 degrees Celsius, Why Half a Degree Really Counts. And there's one in June about how our oceans are responding to climate change. And that's just mentioning a few. So they're all free. You just need to go to the Science Museum's website and book a ticket. Hmm. And for all the ones that have already passed, you can watch them back on the Science Museum's website at your own convenience.
1: Oh, that's great. That's, that's lots to do. Then.
0: I know. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I hadn't heard about those either, actually.
0: No. So I, mean, I feel like climate change is one of those things that most people know something about. But there's just so much more that we can all learn to kind of contextualise it and really understand the full implications of warming, along with the opportunities that we have to improve the situation. So yeah, if you want to brush up on your knowledge of climate change for when you're down the pub, now that lockdown's finishing, and a climate change denier starts the whole, but it snowed this year, so there, argument, then the Science Museum has got you covered. And for free. I do love free. I'm still a student after all.
1: And I feel like something like the whole one point five degrees or two degrees thing is like these are numbers that are bandied around a lot in the media these days because it's something that people can kind of cling on to and hang a policy on or something. Mm. But actually understanding kind of what that means in terms of impacts on the planet is a completely different kettle of fish. And and I think I feel like, you know, most of us have no idea. So that's a really good thing to kind of make that part of the conversation as well.
0: And you can just like watch it while you're washing your dishes or, you know, you want a night at home, whatever. Easy. Free. Love it. Well, it's time to wrap this up. But remember that you, dear nerds, can get in touch with us between episodes. In fact, we positively encourage it. You can email us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at lockdownsciencepodcast or on Twitter at lockdownscience let us know what you think of the show and tell us about any science you've heard about recently that you think deserves a place in journal club.
1: It could be a study that you've read recently and enjoyed, or it could be your own paper. Don't be modest. We'd love to feature your published research on the show.
0: There's just too much imposter syndrome out there in academia. If you've published work, shout about it. Or in this case, tell us about it and we'll shout about it for you.
1: Speaking of shouting about things, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and rating. It gives us a little boost and it helps others to find the show.
0: I feel like it's safest to say this at the end of the show because anyone who didn't enjoy it probably didn't stick around this long. It's only us and you loyal ones now. This is where the magic happens.
1: This is where we put all the gems for the people who stuck it out to the end.
0: (laughs) The real athletes.
1: True troopers. Yeah. And in that vein, it's also only at the end of the show where we reveal that if you send us a nice email and request a photo of Suki, then we will send you one.
0: Perks for our faves only.
1: Well, that's all we've got time for today, but make sure you come back in two weeks' time for another episode of Lockdown Science on FM.